0: We're going to look today at a particular aspect of this subject, perusing the Pentateuch. I said last time that the purpose of the Old Testament in general is to lead us to Christ. And we learn this from the words of the Saviour Himself. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, as we read earlier, The Bible says beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When it says all the scriptures, it means all of the Old Testament. Because that's what they had at that time. When it says beginning at Moses, it's referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses. What we call the Pentateuch. So called because of those two words that form the one word. we were familiar with pentagram and the pentagon. The five-sided shape of that great building there uh, down in D.C. Pentateuch. The five books of Moses. The purpose is obviously to lead us to Christ. Because if the Lord is speaking to these on the road to Emmaus from Moses as well as the rest of the Old Testament, and He's expounding unto them the things concerning Himself, then He must be the subject of those Scriptures. And that's confirmed later in the chapter. Luke 24, verse 44, when He speaks not only to these two, but to the rest of the disciples in the upper room. And He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written, notice it, In the law of Moses, and he's talking about the five books, and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And then he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. The Lord was showing them from the Old Testament where he was spoken of. Now John chapter 5 also contains words of Christ that we quoted last time. In John chapter 5, verse 39, the Lord said, search the Scriptures. And again, he's talking about the Old Testament. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So there it is again. The Lord is the subject of the Old Testament Scriptures. In verse 46, he goes on to say, had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me where did Moses write of Christ? In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch. We noted last time that in the Old Testament there are some 300 predictions. While in the New Testament there are more than 600 quotations from the Old Testament. How anyone can say they're going to preach from the New Testament without reference to the Old, I will never know. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I know I'm going over old ground, but it's really important. God speaks with one mouth, but that one mouth has two lips. The two lips are the Old and New Testaments. So don't carry half a Bible. The whole Bible is the Word of God. There is, of course, a personal aspect to the purpose of the Old Testament for the reader himself. We learn this in several scriptures. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And you'll see there the purpose of the Old Testament scriptures. Romans chapter 4, from verse 23. Notice this. Now it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe in Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So what was written wasn't just written for His sake, i.e. Abraham, but for us also. The Bible is God's word to you, friend. It's God's word to me. The Old Testament was written For our sakes. That's what Romans 4 teaches us. But furthermore, Romans 15 and verse 4 tells us the purpose of the Old Testament scriptures. Romans 15 and verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, and it's talking about the Old Testament obviously, were written for our learning. God wants us to learn. He wants us to be taught. That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. These things that are written aforetime, and that includes the Pentateuch, they were written for our learning. For us to learn about God and His ways. To learn of Christ. To learn that which will be of benefit to our own hearts, giving us comfort through the Scriptures. And hope. Again, the scripture was written, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for another purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 6. There the scripture says, Now these things were our examples. It's talking about what happened to our fathers in the Old Testament. These things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So we're to learn from those examples. Now look at verse number 11. Now all these things happened unto them for end samples. And the word is the word that we would use for types or examples. The Lord wanted us to learn from those things. Notice this. And they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come so there are warnings in scripture that are directed at us as well so bring this together written for our sakes written for our learning written for our example and then we can finally note the words of paul to timothy in second timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 what's the purpose of the word of god all scripture that obviously includes the Old Testament. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word that lies behind that in the Greek is the same word from which we get pneumonia. It has to do with the breathing. In other words, all scripture is God breathed. He breathed out the words. And is profitable for what? For doctrine, that's teaching. For reproof, for correction. Sometimes we need to be corrected for instruction in righteousness that in order that the man of God may be perfect. And the word there doesn't refer to absolute perfection, but to being well-rounded or spiritually mature. That the man of God may be fully mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. How do you get spiritual maturity? Through study and imbibing the Scriptures. So it's important for us to read the Bible. My pastor used to say, believe it or not, the Bible opens to reading. And you'll never learn the content of Scripture without reading it. So read your Bible. As the little children's chorus puts it, read your Bible, pray every day, if you want to grow. And you will not grow spiritually otherwise. Now, think about the New Testament. As we're coming to the Pentateuch, we think about it as part of the entire canon of Scripture. The New Testament is like, if you could put it this way, as a building is to its foundation. The New Testament is to the Old Testament. The Old Testament being the foundation. The New Testament being the building on the foundation. The New Testament, if you like, is the completion and the crown of all that is foretold in the Old Testament. Now, while, as I've said, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed or hidden, the New Testament is obviously then the Old Testament revealed. And it's very important for us to see the connection between the Pentateuch and the rest of the Bible. We'll perhaps get into this later. But one thing that I have mentioned before in preaching that's really important for us to consider is that when you look at the doctrine of the priesthood, the high priest and his ministry and the ministry of the priests in the tabernacle, the book of Leviticus, you should read that on one hand with the book of Hebrews on the other hand. Because when you read Hebrews, it explains so much of what happened. In the book of Leviticus. For example, if you read about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, then you go to Hebrews chapter 9, it all becomes so clear what it's all about. What the priest was doing and in going into the holy place with the blood. Picturing and figuring, foreshadowing our Lord Jesus Christ. Entering into the holy place in heaven, presenting the merits of His own blood. Now the New Testament is made up of four main parts. You'll know this, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The Acts of the Apostles, I prefer to call it the Acts of the Holy Ghost through the Apostles. The Epistles, the Epistles of Paul and of Peter and of John and of Jude and the Epistle to Philemon. And then you have what we call the Apocalypse or the Revelation Please don't say Revelations. There's no such book. There is no such book. I hear this all the time. It does my head in. The book of Revelations. It's not the book of Revelations. Look at it at the very first line of the first chapter of Revelation. It's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's the great secret in reading the book of Revelation: is not to be wondering what those locusts with the long hair what that means but is to look for Christ. Do you know that the title, the Lamb of God, is found over 20 times in the book of Revelation? It's amazing. It's all about Christ. If we could only have eyes to see. Then the Gospels, there's recorded the life of Christ, obviously. And that's the foundation of Christianity. All that Jesus began, both to do and to teach, as Luke puts it. But then in the Acts of the Apostles, there's the story of the building of the New Testament church on that foundation. And then you come to the epistles. And there in the epistles, you have the provision of instruction for that church. While in the book of Revelation, there's the great anticipation of the future triumph of Christ and his people over evil and all opposition. We know how the story ends Christ wins. The people of God are seen to be, as William Hendrickson so well put it, more than conquerors. Now, in these four sections of the New Testament, we can see the biographical, historical, practical and prophetical elements of God's complete revelation. And at every point, Christ is all. Now, because God's revelation has been given to us in book form, it's really important for you and for me to study... And as best we can, master the contents and the theme of each book of the Bible. There should not be one book of the sixty-six that you haven't read. Don't you be going to heaven and meeting Zephaniah, and he saying, "Did you read my book? Oh, I didn't know there was such a book." Or Malachi, or some of the other smaller, so-called minor prophets. All Scripture. Think about that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable. Yes, even the genealogies. You read the first nine chapters or so of First Chronicles. Boy, it's hard going, isn't it? So-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. But if your name was one of those names, you wouldn't like it to be left out. God's put those names in there for a reason. And there's a blessing even in reading those names. There was a preacher once uh, from my country who had a lot of trouble with Hebrew names. And so when he came to some of those big long words, he used to just say, Hallelujah. So he said that a lot in First Chronicles. He said that a lot. But listen, it's really important that we read the Bible. And the Pentateuch being the first part of the Bible, the first section, the first five books, it's really foundational to the message of the entire Bible. And each book of the five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, you're going to hear that a lot, provides a phase of God's plan. And together, those books constitute a real unity. And that is why it's good even just to read through the Pentateuch. I was going to say in one reading, that will take a long time. But if you could read through the Pentateuch, just start at Genesis chapter 1 and go all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. Read it consecutively. And seek to look there and see what God is saying in each of those books. Think about Genesis. Genesis speaks about the origin of the religion and of the people of, that God chose as the medium of that religion. Genesis is the foundation of just about everything. It has been called the Book of Beginnings. And you're going to see there in Genesis, everything that's mentioned everywhere else in Scripture pretty much is in that book. Almost everything. And that's, uh, the reason for that is obvious. It's the first book of the Bible that's going to talk about things for the first time. It speaks about creation for the first time. It's not the only time in the Bible it talks about creation. But Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are devoted to the story of creation. And by the way, it's not parabolic, it's history. It's real history. It really happened. As did Genesis chapter 3. But then the book of Exodus, what does it do? It tells us the story of the formation of that people into a nation. See, it started out as a big family. Right at the end of Genesis, you have about 70 souls. That would have been some kind of a family reunion they could have. Seventy people. But they weren't a nation yet. They were just a large extended family. But there in Egypt, as they multiplied and grew, the Lord then brought them out of that bondage and at that point they became a nation. And God established His covenant with that nation. And so the book of Exodus shows us the beginning of the nation and the establishment of the relationship of the Lord with it. The book of Leviticus, the, the, the clue is in the name, Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. It's the book of the priesthood. The book of Leviticus deals with the various ways in which that relationship between God and his people was maintained. It's the book of the priesthood and the offerings. Then you've got the book of Numbers and as the name Numbers suggests, there was a numbering of the people that happened twice. The first numbering of the people was in the first chapter and the second numbering of the people in I think it's chapter 26 or somewhere like that. But Numbers reveals how the people of Israel were organized for the purpose of commencing the life of the divine religion in the land of promise, in the land of Canaan. And that book of Numbers also tells us about the failure of the nation and the consequent delay with reorganization. You know, it's a really sad fact that when they were in the land, about to go into the promised land, they're only something like 11 days journey. But it took them almost 40 years before they entered the land. They were just going around and around in the wilderness until they all died out bar two old men, Joshua and Caleb. It's an amazing story. Then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the book of the second law. It shows us how the people of God were prepared on the border of the promised land for their entry into that land which was soon to follow. And Deuteronomy is a wonderful book You know there's no book of the Old Testament that has been more assailed and assaulted by critics and liberals than Deuteronomy. You might wonder why that is. But it's a fact. And we're going to be dealing today with one of the assaults of liberalism. Not only a book of Deuteronomy, but the whole of the Pentateuch. It's not without significance that when the Lord Jesus in his temptation in Matthew 4 answered the devil three times with, It is written each of the quotations was from the book of Deuteronomy. So the Lord Jesus put his seal of approval upon that book. Now I've entitled today's message uh, with a question. Who wrote the Pentateuch? Now obviously the simple answer to that is God. It's God's word. The Lord gave the word. The Lord wrote the word. The Lord inspired the word, that it might be written. But when we're talking about the authorship of the Pentateuch, who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, we come up with this answer simply, Moses. The five books of Moses. You'll note already this morning, and last week we quoted the words of Jesus in John chapter 5. It bears repetition. John chapter 5. And verse 45 and 46. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses in whom ye trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? And when you take that against Luke chapter 24 and how the Lord Jesus, beginning at Moses, expounded to them the things concerning Himself. And then talked later to the men in the upper room uh, using the law of Moses. The Lord Jesus believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. So anyone who denies the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch is denying Christ. That's a fundamental point. But it's one that needs to be remembered. Remembered. By the way, like I said last time about the law, sometimes in the Bible when you read about the law, it's talking about the moral law, the 10 commandments. Sometimes when it's speaking about the law, it's referring to the whole of the five books of Moses. For instance, when in the book of Nehemiah, they gathered in the street in chapter 8 and Ezra stood on a pulpit of wood and began to read to them the law of Moses. It's not just the 10 commandments, it's all five books. That they were reading. But then sometimes, when you read about Moses, it's, it's the person. It's the actual person Moses. Other times when you read about Moses, it's, about, it's talking about the writings of Moses. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Just as it is with the law of God. You go to Psalm 119 and it says the law of the Lord is perfect. It's talking about the whole Bible. It's not just referring to the Ten Commandments. It's not just referring to the Pentateuch. It's referring to the whole of the Scriptures. So there are different usages of the word law. It's also true of Moses. Sometimes Moses is the person. Sometimes Moses is the five books of Moses. For example, Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 15. But even unto this day when Moses is read... The veil is upon their heart. What does that mean? When Moses is read. Well, the writings of Moses. The books of Moses. The five books of the Pentateuch. Paul is talking about that here. There is the reading of the Old Testament. That's the connection in verse 14. Their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. So when it talks about Moses here, it's not obviously talking about the person. You can't read a person. It's the books of Moses. It's the Pentateuch. But notice how Paul describes it. He describes this Old Testament portion as Moses. That's because he believed that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. And that's the traditional view of conservative theologians, Bible believers. This is the conviction of those who are committed to the verbal inspiration of Scripture, as I am. Who are committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, as I am. It is without fault and without error. And also committed to the integrity of Scripture. This is the traditional view. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Why does it matter so much? Well, it does matter. Because a bunch of German rationalists in the 19th century decided that they would go through the Bible and they would denude the Scripture of all the supernatural. And they would sit in judgment on God's Word. And they would read portions which told about Jesus walking on the water. And in their rational minds they thought, well, men don't walk on water. That's impossible. That's impossible. That's something that doesn't happen, so therefore it didn't happen. So there has to be another explanation for it. Oh, I know what it was. Just under the surface of the water, there was a sandbank. And so he was walking along that sandbank with just a couple of inches of water, and those people who saw that thought he was walking in the water. You know where that comes from? The pit. That's where that comes from, that kind of notion. That comes from hell. The same origin as those who deny the authenticity of the flood, the worldwide flood, and of Noah and the ark, of Jonah and the whale, and all of the supernatural things in Scripture. But German rationalists went through the Bible and decided they would sit in judgment upon it and they would bring human reasoning to bear on the Scriptures. And they've done the same with the authorship of the Pentateuch. One of the things that they've said is that when you read in the book of Deuteronomy, toward the end of that book, it speaks about the death of Moses. Right? It talks about Moses dying, and about Moses being buried. And so, in their human wisdom, they said to themselves, now wait a wee minute, Moses couldn't have written that. Because that's talking about something that happened to Moses, it's referring to him in the third person. that Moses went up from the plains of Moab and so on. And he died there in the land of Moab. Deuteronomy 34 verse 5. And verse 6 says that God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. And nobody knows about his sepulcher unto this day. And so the German rationalists looked at that and they said, Well, that couldn't have been written by Moses. Because it's talking about Moses' death and burial. And my answer to that is why could it not have been written by Moses? Could Moses not have written about his own death? The Bible calls Moses a prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 he's referred to as a prophet. That Christ who would come would be just like Moses in the sense that he was a prophet. And when you think about what the prophets themselves wrote Stuff that was going to happen hundreds of years in the future. You could say, well, Isaiah could not have written about the cross work of Christ in Isaiah chapter 53 because he wasn't there. That was about 800 years before. But it was written by Isaiah because he was a prophet to whom God revealed this truth. Just as he did to all the prophets. But you see, this is what happened when men in their so called wisdom begin to sit in judgment on the book what we're supposed to do is let the book judge us we don't sit in judgment on the book and try to say well that doesn't normally happen so therefore it didn't happen the sun standing still and the moon standing still that doesn't happen well it did happen because God made it happen but you see when men come to the scripture they like to cherry pick what is there and we know from reading the Bible that the human penman of the Pentateuch was Moses, hence we call it the five books of Moses but there is this other view, it's often termed the modern critical view it's the view of German rationalists that's where it started It's the result of unbelieving higher criticism. And what they will say is that the Pentateuch, those five books, is actually a composite work of various schools of priests that was put together about the 8th century BC for partisan purposes. They will tell you, and men have gone into writing on this, they've put this in print, that the Pentateuch is all based on oral tradition Word of mouth. And the principal redactors are called J, E, and P. These are letters that they give to these principal redactors. And although the critics do differ widely among themselves as to judge just which sections to assign to these respective editors, the theory is put forth under the specious claim That it is the assured result of modern scholarship. You you should always be very careful when people talk like that. Oh, now you peons. You don't really understand this because you're not scholars. That's supposed to deflect. That's supposed to squelch any opposition. We're smart men. You're not smart. So keep your mouth shut. That's how these people treat many subjects. One of those is science. I had a fellow tell me one day that uh, evolution was settled science. Really? Settled science? I always thought science was knowledge based on facts. Not a theory. Oh, evolution is a theory, but it's not facts. It's not factual at all. And I'm not here to deal with that subject today, but those who believe in these things will try to put you in your place by telling you that you don't know anything about science. Therefore, be quiet. Now, according to this higher critical view of the Pentateuch, what you read in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, you thought that was history, didn't you? Well, it's not, according to them. It's not history at all. It's not real history. It's just a patchwork picked out of a rag bag of scattered legends. So it's kind of like a book of Grimm's fairy tales. You know that? the little gingerbread boy. That's just like that. Now, I think it's unprofitable to spend a lot of time poring over the arguments and conclusions of wicked minds in order to establish what we should believe in. I would rather that we spend our time studying the scriptures themselves. But I think there's some benefit to be gleaned uh, if you just examine the basic elements of the views of heretics in order to refute them. And they can be refuted. And so in this regard, as far as the Pentateuch is concerned... Uh, There are some very able treatments of the subject, one in particular by a man called Oswald T. Alice, called The Five Books of Moses. And, And the main focus of that book is the book of Deuteronomy that I've already mentioned. And it is the one book of the five that has been assailed and undermined by modern critics more than any other. And Oswald Alice accurately designates the higher critical view as a radical theory. That's what it is. You know, one of the things they'll tell you is that writing was unknown in Moses' day. They didn't know how to write. But, there have been recent archaeological finds and discoveries in countries like Egypt, Palestine, Mesopotamia. And they have shown clear evidence, both in inscriptions and found in layers of earth, that the narratives of the Old Testament are true historical records. Now, I don't need to go into that secular field to prove the Bible to be true. I think it's a mistake if we think that we're going to, you know, help people, we're going to make people believe the Bible by showing them how uh, it is proved to be true by other things. That's in the field of apologetics. I'm not against that altogether. But, you know, men and their unbelief are not going to accept anything that you bring to their attention that doesn't fit with their theories. There are people, and we read about them in Scripture, who are faced flat out with the truth, and even though they see it in front of their eyes, they do not accept it. How so? Well, they saw the miracles that Jesus did. And even though they saw the miracles that He did, they did not believe on Him. And the Lord Jesus Himself said something that I think we always must remember. I think this is controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. You're not going to get people to believe the gospel or to believe the Bible by taking them on a trip to Kentucky to see an ark that has been made and all the artifacts. Now, is there any benefit in the ark encounter? Of course there is. It's beautifully done by all accounts. But you know what Jesus said when he was talking to Lazarus in Luke chapter 16? When Lazarus said, look, I want you to send Abraham to my five brothers. And I want you to tell him to tell them that they need to repent. Because I don't want them to come to this awful place. You know what Jesus said? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And if they don't hear them, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead. Now that puts apologetics in its right place. I don't believe that Noah's Ark exists because somebody's got a picture of it over in Mount Ararat. Some place over there in Eastern Europe. I believe it because the Bible says it. That's why I believe it. And I believe a lot of what I believe by faith. Not because I can see it. But because God said it and that settles it. Now, many of the higher critics for years maintained that writing was not known until long after the days of Moses, so he couldn't have written the Pentateuch. But of course, I just go back to the Scripture. And the Scriptures persist in declaring that Moses did write these books. And the Lord Jesus himself said, He wrote you, Mark chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus said it. Who do you believe? Higher critics or the Lord Jesus? Or John 5 and 46. He wrote of me. Who do we believe? The higher critics or the Lord Jesus? And even the Jews themselves. And you couldn't call them believers. In Mark chapter 12. We have their words. Spoken to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 12 and verse 19. They said, Master, Moses wrote unto us if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and so on it's referring to that which is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25 Master Moses wrote unto us so even the Jews didn't accept the nonsense of the higher critics because they believed that Moses was able to write but of course not to be outdone and with this we'll have to finish. Some critics infer that all of this was nothing. Get this. Because Jesus shared the ignorances and the prejudices of his day. Now you can just hear the hiss of the serpent from somebody saying something like that. When anyone denigrates the Lord Jesus Christ, or says something of that kind, that makes out our saviour to be some sort of a deceiver or a liar, you know that that comes from the very pits of hell. No, I'm telling you, Moses wrote the five books that we're studying here. The Pentateuch was written under divine inspiration. Moses was the writer. And that is made abundantly clear by the scriptures themselves. We haven't time to look at these verses But the laws and the ordinances of the first five books are compassed by the oft-repeated expression, The Lord spake unto Moses. You'll read that over and over again. The Lord spake unto Moses. For example, in, in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, and most of the chapters in Numbers, and almost every chapter in Leviticus commences with those words, The Lord spoke unto Moses. So... If, as we're told, the laws were compiled from a variety of other documents, how could it be truly said that the Lord spoke these to Moses? We are told in Acts chapter 7 something that I definitely will finish with. Acts chapter 7. It's the great polemic of Stephen when he's speaking about Israelite history. And it says in Acts 7 verse 38... Well, we'll read verse 37 as well. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear. That's in Deuteronomy 18. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Notice this. Who received the lively oracles to give unto us. We're told that Moses received, not merely compiled, these living oracles. These are not the words of a bunch of people compiled together many centuries after Moses lived. But rather these are the words of the Lord. And the Bible actually uses that term in Exodus 24 verse 4. All the words of the Lord. And we're thankful for all the words of the Lord including the five books of Moses. And I trust that as we get into the meat of these books, which I intend to do, we'll see for ourselves and feel within our own hearts, this is the Word of God. This is the very truth of God given to us by Moses for our learning, for our benefit, for our admonition. And may the Lord write His truth upon our souls.